Thank you that we can say it's not I, but through you, because of you, in you, that we have life and breath and meaning and purpose and a future. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you suffered for our pardon. Thank you that you died in our place. Thank you that you laid down your life so that we can know this freedom, this peace, this stability, this hope. Thank you for the truths that are true from your word. Thank you for the truth that sets us free. Thank you for the truth that inflames our hearts and Thank you for the truth that secures us forever. Lord, I thank you so much that you have gathered us as your church. We long for that day when you split the skies. We long for that day when you return for your own. We long for that day when you will right all wrongs. And so come, Lord Jesus. We long for that day. And we pray that in the meantime, you would help us to be faithful to you and to your cause. Help us to be centered on You. Help us to be grounded in You. Help us to stand firm in You. Lord, would You enable us to do that? To live lives that are pleasing and honoring to You. Please help us. We need You in these difficult days. We feel the pressures of this world all around us and we are in need of Your enduring grace. We thank You that now we can open Your Word. and we just, we just love Your Word. We thank You that You've spoken to us. We thank You that Your Word is true. We thank You that Your Word is sweet as honey to our lips. We pray that You would help us to desire Your truth more than gold, more than much fine gold. We pray that You would speak to us from Your Word now. We're just bent toward Your Word. And so would You speak to us truths that would center us on You. Would you remind us of our need, of our lack of understanding, and of your grace, and of your wisdom, and of your power? Remind us of these great truths today. I pray you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14-16, through 16, the Apostle Paul says this about the ministry that God has given to him. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? In other words, Paul says the good news of the Gospel is only good news to those who are being saved. To those who are perishing because they continue to cling to their sin, the Gospel is the fragrance of death to them, Paul says. And so he says we spread the knowledge of God through our lips, through our lives, and as we do so, we're a fragrance. We smell a certain way as we seek to live out the Gospel in our lives. We are like that salesperson in the department store spraying everyone who walks by with perfume. To some, the perfume smells sweet. And to some, it gives them a headache. The Gospel is the fragrance of life to some and death 
to others. Or to put it the way we're going to see it here in Revelation 10 this morning, the Word of God is sweet to some and bitter to others. It is a bittersweet truth that we are to proclaim to the nations. The message we sing about, the message we celebrate, the message we center our lives on is going to be sweet to some and incredibly bitter to others. So find Revelation 10 in your copy of Scripture. Let's bend our ear to the truth of God's Word. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, you can find one of the Black Pew Bibles in the rack there. Find the last book of the Bible, and we're in the 10th chapter of the book of Revelation. The Apostle John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and the sea and what is in it, and that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and and nations and languages and kings. This is the Word of God. May God write its truth on our hearts. So Revelation 10 is another of the interludes or pauses in the book of Revelation. We saw this a few weeks ago in Revelation chapter 7. Between the 6th and the 7th seal being open, we got a picture of the people of God. Remember the seals, the 6th seal... Ask the question, who can stand as God pours out His wrath? Who can stand when God's judgment comes? And the answer from chapter 7 was, God's people can stand. God's people can stand because they have been sealed by God and they are being sheltered by God. 
So we have a similar interruption or interlude here in chapters 10 and 11. This is an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. John sees a vision that shows him what the people of God are to do as they await the coming of the Lord Jesus. He shows us what it is that the people of God should be doing in this church age before Jesus returns again. And the picture we get in this interlude is not as encouraging as the first interlude in chapter 7. In chapter 7, we saw that God seals His saints And we saw that God shelters His saints in heaven, that He protects us because He has redeemed us. But in this interlude, we have some hard truth to swallow. Revelation 10 and 11 shows us a picture of what God has commissioned His people to do. See, our task is the same as the task that was given to the Apostle John. Now, yes, John was an apostle. He had a special and unique role in this, and particularly in writing this book and writing these things down. But now that commission has been passed down to us, his people, his church, that we would do the same thing John was called to do. We are called to proclaim the hard truth of the judgment of God to this hostile world. The message that we are called to proclaim is not popular. We will be persecuted and we will be killed as we are the aroma of death to those who are perishing. And so Revelation 10 sets up this picture for us. And it does so by pointing us to some big truths that we need to hold on to in the midst of this hostile world. If we're going to be faithful to the Lord Jesus, if we're going to be faithful in the midst of a hostile world, we need to hold on to some of these truths that we see here. Because these truths enable us to remain faithful even when we feel like giving up. How do we remain faithful even when we feel like giving up? Well, here are some truths that we need to cling to from this chapter. Let's consider this passage under four big truths. Here's the first one. Number one, our God is beyond glorious. Our God. It's the God who is beyond glorious. So notice in verse 1 that John sees another mighty angel. Now the previous mighty angel was back in chapter 5, but this mighty angel is described for us in detail here. In fact, John tells us why this angel was so mighty. This angel is uniquely strong. He is uniquely glorious. And as we see this angel described in these first few verses, we should notice many similarities with how Jesus himself is described in the book of Revelation. In fact, there are many commentators who believe that this mighty angel in verse 1 is the Lord Jesus himself. In the Old Testament, there are a lot of references to the angel of the Lord. And he seemed to be a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so perhaps this isn't just an angel. Perhaps this is Jesus described as a messenger of God. That's how some take this. However, I lean toward just seeing this as an angel, just taking it at face value here. In fact, Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 say Jesus is much better, much more glorious than all the angels. And so I see this as an extremely glorious angel who represents Jesus. And the point is this. If this angel is this glorious, 
How glorious must our God be? If this is a created being, then the Creator must be all the more glorious and majestic. If this angel is manifesting the characteristics of Jesus and representing Jesus to John, then Jesus must be glorious beyond comprehension. And seeing and knowing the beauty and majesty of our God and Redeemer is one of the helps to us to remain faithful in a difficult and hostile world. So my understanding is that this mighty angel is so connected to Jesus that he radiates Jesus' glory. He resembles the Savior who sent him. And so just look at how this angel is described. Not only is he described as mighty, but also he came down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. He came down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. There are many, many Old Testament references to God being surrounded by the clouds. This speaks of the authority of the one who sent him and the authority that has been given to this angel. Secondly, he has a rainbow over his head. This reminds us of God's mercy and the radiance of God's beauty and majesty. His face was like the sun, it says. Now remember, this is exactly how Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 1. It says His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And here we see this angel's face is like the sun. Notice His legs were like pillars of fire, which speaks, I think, of His sturdiness and the purpose to come and judge unbelievers. Verse 2 says that He set His right foot on the sea and His left foot on the land. And so picture just how gigantic this angel is. The picture is not like standing on the beach where you can put kind of one foot in little shallow water and the other foot's kind of in muddy, soggy sand. No, the picture is one foot is in the middle of the ocean and one foot is on the middle of the land. This angel is literally straddling the earth. This, this angel is literally straddling the entire earth. And to put your foot on something is a metaphor for being sovereign over it. Our God is sovereign over land and sea and everything. Verse 3 says that this mighty angel had a loud voice like a roaring lion. Have you heard a lion roar? Most of us have probably only heard that on some video or some movie, but a lion's roar will make your insides shudder. Your bones will tremble at this sound. This angel is authoritative and he is majestic. Notice in verse 5, this mighty angel raises his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. This is who our God is. He lives forever and ever, and mighty angels who straddle the earth swear to Him and to Him alone. And so friends, this angel represents no small God. He represents one who is infinitely bigger and stronger and more glorious than Himself. And the point is that this angel is here to give courage and confidence to John in the midst of these visions of judgment that he's seeing. 
in the midst of the persecution and suffering of following Jesus, God doesn't come to us and say, just believe in yourself. God doesn't come to us and say, you can do it, just try hard. Oh, friends, that would not be good news. That would not be good news at all. No, God comes to us in this angel who straddles the earth and says, look at the one you trust. The one you trust is strong and steadfast and glorious. See, God has promised to be with us and to go before us as we obey Him in this hard world that is opposed to His purposes. And this hard, hostile world that, that persecutes the people of God, that marginalizes us when we preach the truth. We have a God who's with us. A God who goes before us. And this, this God is not small and wimpy. This God is glorious beyond compare. This, this is why I love what Jesus says in the Great Commission so much. When Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, comes to His disciples and tells them what their task is, He doesn't just tell them, go make disciples. Figure it out on your own. Do it. You've got the strength to do it. Now He comes to them and the first thing He says is, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Jesus comes to them and says, my foot's on the sea and on the land. This is all mine. Therefore, go and make disciples knowing that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, friends, we obey God. We proclaim the gospel knowing that God is totally sovereign and God is fully with us. He is totally sovereign and He is fully with us and for us. This is such a helpful truth as we think about how difficult it is to follow Jesus in the nitty-gritty of this life. Our God is beyond glorious. Whenever our eyes get off of God and onto us and onto our weakness, we, we will despair. We will be depressed. We will not follow Jesus. But when we have our eyes on this big, huge, mighty God who is sovereign over all, then we can endure whatever this world throws at us. Our God is beyond glorious. Secondly, here's the second truth. This big truth I want you to see is our understanding of God's plan is limited. Our understanding of God's plan is limited. So in verses 3 and 4, John hears a very interesting sound. He's already heard the loud voice of this angel. And now, this mighty angel spoke and seven thunders sounded. But John says these thunders weren't like we normally hear in a storm. These thunders speak. These thunders contain words and plans. They contain God's words. And God's plans. In fact, look at what John's reaction was to these thunders that spoke to him. Look at verse 4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven. That's the voice of God saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not, do not write it down. And so John hears the word of God from these thunders, and he's ready to write it down. Just like he's done with all of these other visions and all the visions to come in Revelation, John assumes that God wants the seven churches to hear what these seven thunders said. However, unlike all the other visions, God says, don't write this down, but rather seal it up. Now, just thinking about the patterns 
of what John sees and hears through all of these visions, my assumption is that these seven thunders contained another series of judgments from God. Just like the seven seals and the seven trumpets, and we'll see later the seven bowls of God's wrath, these seven thunders perhaps are another cycle of revelation as to what God is going to do and allow to happen to those who worship the beast. But in His wisdom... God conceals the meaning of these seven thunders from us. They will happen. They are part of His plan, but they remain hidden from us. For reasons only known to God, He does not reveal all of His plan to us. And so even in a book like Revelation, that unveils so much of God's plan. In fact, that's what revelation means. It means unveiling. God is unveiling His plans and His purposes through this book. Even in a book like this, there are particulars of His plan that He does not want us to know. And as creatures, we have to be okay with that. There are some things that are too glorious or too terrifying for us to know. And thus we are limited in our understanding. We know some things with certainty, praise God, because God reveals them to us, but we do not know everything. God doesn't always tell us what we want to know, but He always tells us what we need to know. Listen, God's Word is sufficient. God's Word is sufficient. And by that I mean God's Word... He has told us everything in His Word that is necessary to have a relationship with Him and to trust Him all of our days. But that doesn't mean that He has told us everything that He's going to do. Now, isn't this interesting? That in a book that so many interpret as giving us a blueprint for exactly what's going to happen in the end times, we have a passage saying, you don't know everything. (laughs) I, I love this. Because I see these charts, I'm reading these commentaries that say, this is what's going to happen, and this is what's going to happen, and you can expect this and expect this. And then here, right in the middle of the book, we have this passage saying, you don't know it all. Don't trust your charts, don't trust your graphs or your own understanding, because your knowledge, your perspective is limited. Now, I know for many of us, the thought of God withholding His plans is unsettling. But for me, friends, this reminds me of my limitations And reminds me of God's wisdom. The secret things belong to the Lord. And I don't have to know it all. And there's something freeing there just to admit that. I don't have to know it all. As curious as I am. As much as I want to know. I don't have to know it all. And acknowledging this limitation. Just acknowledging it. I think helps us trust God in the difficult calling of following Jesus in this hostile world. God has a perfect plan, and we can trust His heart even when we can't see all that He's doing. Somebody here needs to hear that today. In the midst of whatever's happening in your life, in the midst of whatever difficulties you face, you need to know that you can trust God's plan and His heart even if you can't see all that He's doing. This is good news. This is good news that helps us endure whatever hostility or suffering we face in this life. But here's the third truth that I want you to see here that will help us endure in the midst of this hostility. Number three, God's Word 
will certainly be fulfilled. God's word will certainty, certainly, without a doubt, be fulfilled. Now notice again what happens with this mighty angel making an oath to God. So in verse 5, this mighty angel raises his right hand to heaven. And in verse 6, he swears an oath to God. Now why is John allowed to see this? And why does God want us to know about this angel swearing, taking an oath to God? Well, one of the Old Testament references that this is fulfilling is found in Daniel chapter 12. We don't have time to go to Daniel 12 today, but sometime today, read Daniel chapter 12. It's a prophecy specifically about the end times, and we have an angel, a mighty creature, swearing to God that it will be completed. And here we see the same picture of this angel saying it's going to be completed, and he's swearing this to God. But why, why would an angel, a mighty creature like this, swear to God? Well, swearing an oath was basically like taking a promise. And so what is the promise here that this angel is making? What is he promising to do? Well, notice the end of verse 6. This angel, after he swears to the one who lives forever and ever, who made everything that there is, he says, that there would be no more delay. He's promising that there's not going to be any more delay. Notice verse 7. It says, when the seventh trumpet is sounded, which we're going to see in chapter 11, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as He announced to His servants, the prophets. So this angel is making an oath to carry out God's plans, to specifically carry out the judgments of God's plan that were given to Him. He's saying, I will do it. He's saying, I'm not going to let this task go unfinished. I will not delay any longer. God, the task that You have given me, I'm going to do I'm going to complete it. In other words, this vision is here to show John the certainty that God's plan is going to be fulfilled. His word will not return void. There is a day when God will end it all. He has been patient with evil and idolatry, but one day His full and final wrath will be poured out. Evil has an expiration date. This mighty angel has sworn by God that he will carry out God's judgments and God's plan. Can you imagine how overwhelming this whole scene would have been to the Apostle John? He is witnessing this breathtakingly mighty angel make a promise to ensure that God's judgment is poured out on the wicked, to ensure that God's perfect plan will be completed. So how sure is God's Word? How likely will it be that God will fulfill His plan that He has promised, that He has spoken of for a long time? How sure is it? Well, it's as sure as God is true to His Word. which doesn't get any more sure than that. But it's also as sure as this mighty angel has been given this authority by God. This angel has promised that He will do it just as God promised the prophets long ago. The mystery of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ will be fulfilled. We may not know exactly how or when it will all happen, but you can count on this. It will happen. The Word of God will never fail. And this is good news to those of us who are clinging to the promises of Christ. 
Because in this, in this promise is our eternal life and our eternal joy. So this is good news that it is sure, that it is stable. But friends, this news is incredibly bitter. This news is incredibly harsh for those of you who are not trusting in Christ. Because the reality is the games that you're playing with your life, the sort of way that you're thinking, oh, I'll think about that later. I'll get to that after I'm done having all my fun. Here's the reality. God's word is sure. He's going to accomplish his purposes. And his, and his purposes include the judgment of all those who reject Christ. The judgment of all of those who turn to their idols instead of to him. He will pour out his judgment. There's coming a payday. There's coming a payday soon. And so if you're not trusting in Jesus, where do you find your safety and security? How do you live in the terror that your sins are going to find you out and you will be punished? And so I urge you, flee to Jesus today. Flee to Him. God is the only refuge from the judgment of God. The only way to avoid the judgment of God is to find refuge in God and, and the cross of Christ where He laid down His life to bear that judgment for us. And today He offers full and free forgiveness to all who would swear allegiance to Him. So do not delay any longer. Trust in Jesus alone today. Trust in Jesus right now, right where you're sitting. Put your faith and your hope in Him. God's Word is sure. It will for sure come to pass. You need to know that. But here's the fourth and the final truth I want you to see in this passage. Number four, God's Word is both bitter and sweet. God's Word is both bitter and sweet. Okay, so verses 8 through 11 are super interesting. (laughs) I was going to say strange, but there are a lot of strange things in Revelation, so I went with super interesting. (laughs) God tells John to take the scroll from the hand of the angel... And eat it. Now, before we get to discussing what a scroll might taste like, we should ask the question what is this scroll that John is commanded to eat? What is this scroll? Well, earlier in chapter 10, particularly in verse 2, this is specifically called a little scroll. So, for the longest time, the way that I read chapter 10 was I thought this was not the same scroll as the scroll with the seven seals back in chapter 5. After all, the one, this one is distinguished from that one because it's called little, right? It's, it's a different scroll. It's a little scroll. However, the more I thought about this, the more I studied these two passages next to each other, I'm beginning to see that I think this is the same scroll as the one that was in chapter 5, the scroll that Jesus has already opened. After all, look at verse 8. It describes this scroll as opened. Describes the scroll is open. Also, if you look back in chapter 5, you'll notice that both of these scrolls are associated with a mighty angel and with the God who lives forever and ever. And part of the commission to John in both visions is to people and nations and tongues. There's just a lot of similarities between chapter 5 and chapter 10 here. And so I think the assumption of both of these visions is that this is either the exact same scroll as in chapter 5 Or at the very least, this scroll in chapter 10 is a portion of that larger scroll. Maybe that's why it's called little. I'm not entirely sure. But what we can say is that this scroll is God's Word. This scroll contains 
the truth of God. This, it represents God's Word for John. The scroll contains the heart and purposes and plans of the Lord. And God tells John to go and take this scroll from the angel. Now, how intimidating would that have been? Go see that mighty angel straddling the earth? Go take that scroll from his hand. I think I would rather take a steak from a ferocious lion than try to take something out of this mighty angel's hand. Well, John obeys. He takes the scroll and God commands him to eat the scroll. God doesn't command him to read the scroll, but to consume it, to eat it. I think my next question would have been, can I at least dip it in some barbecue sauce? But the point isn't to get bogged down in sharing recipes for the best way to eat scrolls. Eating the scroll is a metaphor. It's an illustration for consuming God's Word, for ingesting the truth of God spiritually. John consume that scroll. John eat that scroll. Let it become part of you. And as God tells him to eat the scroll, he tells John what it will taste like. God says, it will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Now, whenever we read something like this in the book of Revelation, our minds should immediately ask, is there any Old Testament reference that would help us understand this? And usually the answer is yes. This is a reference back to Ezekiel's commission in Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3. The way God calls Ezekiel to be his prophet is by having him eat a scroll. You see, God told Ezekiel that his task was to proclaim God's message even though no one would listen to him. Think about the commission of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. We, it's a passage we love. You remember the passage, the, the, the threshold shakes and, and God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And God touches his lips and says, you're clean. And we usually stop the passage right there. But the passage goes on and Isaiah says, God, here am I. I'll do whatever you call me to do. And you know what God says to him? I want you to go to a stiff-necked people who will not listen to what you say. I want you to proclaim my message to a people who will turn away from me and reject me. That's what I want you to do for the rest of your life. Tell people the truth who will not receive it. And that's the same commission that he gives Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel, my people are stubborn. They don't want to hear it and they will reject me. But I want you to declare my message to them. It's an incredibly difficult task. Ezekiel was to declare God's judgment to a hard-hearted people. And so to solidify this calling in Ezekiel's mind and heart, God commands him to eat a scroll. The scroll, it says, was sweet in Ezekiel's mouth. It says sweet as honey. But the message that he was to proclaim was bitter to the idolatrous people of Israel. And so this is exactly what God is telling John to do in Revelation 10. And through John, this is what God is telling us to do. God's perfect plan is both bitter and sweet. It is sweet to those who trust God, and it is bitter to those God judges. The gospel is bitter to unbelievers, but it is sweet to believers. See, in this life, there's bitterness in following Jesus. We are persecuted. We suffer. But we follow Jesus knowing the sweetness of what God has promised when Jesus returns. 
Friends, God's Word is sweet as honey. It is more precious than gold. And what God says is sweet because God promises great things for those who trust in Jesus. But God's Word also has a bitter aftertaste. God has some hard things to say to us. Some things that go against our natural understanding of things. Like just understanding this is, would help us so much read and understand the Bible. God doesn't just say things that confirm the things we already feel and believe naturally. God says some things that are against our natural inclination and understanding. Some things that seem bitter. And so John is commissioned in verse 11 to preach the bittersweet truth of God's Word to the nations. John, preach this message that's going to be bitter in their stomachs, but will be sweet as honey in your mouth. And we're commissioned to do that same thing, to preach that same bittersweet truth. So just briefly, let me try to recap by giving us three application truths. Three application points. Number one, Friends, let's preach the truth even when it's hard. Or another way I was going to say that is, let's preach the truth even if it gets us killed. Let's preach the truth even if it gets us ostracized. Let's tell the truth even if it gets us persecuted and we suffer. Friends, just because God's truth is bitter doesn't mean we shouldn't preach it. Just because God's truth is bitter doesn't mean we should reject it or avoid it or water it down like we're so tempted to do. This is why our normal steady diet for Sunday mornings is preaching passage by passage through books of the Bible. Because friends, if it was up to me each week to just decide what passages we were going to preach on, I'd avoid things that are hard and controversial. I would just get a few hobby horses and just everything would sort of be, be about that. But Preaching through whole books ensures that we are exposing ourselves to all of God's truth, whether it is sweet or whether it is bitter. This world needs to hear the truth of God, even if it turns bitter in their stomachs. Secondly, let's consume the sweet word of God. Let's consume the sweet word of God. As followers of Jesus, God's truth should be sweet to our souls. We should long to read it and study and memorize it, meditate on it. We should delight to hear God's word proclaimed. But friends, we got to consume it. We have to eat it like our daily bread. We have to actually get it inside of us to intake it. And so read and study and memorize the Bible. This is how we eat it. This is how we ingest it. This is how we internalize it. Because I can say with certainty from my own experience that no spiritual discipline has made a bigger impact in more areas of my life than the commitment to read and meditate on God's Word every single day. This impacts how I'm a husband. This impacts how I'm a father. This impacts how I do my job. This impacts how I relate to my neighbors. This impacts everything about me. Consume the sweet word of God. And finally, number three, let's submit to God's authority. Let's submit to God's authority now. Let's all submit to His sovereign rule and control over our lives. See, like every other passage in the book of Revelation, this passage shows us that God's in control. He has a plan and he can be trusted. And therefore, let's trust him in the midst of this difficult, hostile world. Let's submit ourselves even now to his great authority.
Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I thank You for the truth of Your Word. I thank You for this vision that You gave John that reminds us of these grand truths. Lord, I pray that these truths would center us, that they would, they would be sort of a, a grounding for us to be faithful to You in the midst of this life of suffering and difficulty. God, we need You. We are a people desperate for Your help and Your hope. And so, Lord, would You write these truths on our hearts? These truths be part of us. Would they be part of the way we think? And would they propel our actions and our behaviors? God, we pray that You would help us to proclaim Your truth, whether it is bitter or whether it is sweet. Help us to proclaim it for the glory of Your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and...